Welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. We now continue with John Stott and the series, Four Portraits of Christ. Today's part two features the Gospel of Mark. For the benefit of those of you who have uh, not been here before, you may recall Richard Buse mentioned that uh, we are looking at the four Gospels, the God-given fourfold portrait of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. And the background to our study is the multiplicity of Jesuses who are on offer in the world today. I mentioned some of them last week. There is Jesus the ascetic, and there is Jesus the clown. There is Jesus the capitalist and Jesus the socialist. There is Jesus the critic of the establishment and Jesus the champion of the establishment. There is Jesus the freedom fighter and there is Jesus the disillusioned superstar. In contrast to these and many other fantasies of the human mind, for all those that I mentioned are either distorted or actually false, we turn with some relief to the Gospels and to the portrait, the fourfold portrait that God in his providence has made available to us, which bears witness to the authentic Jesus. Not the Jesus of human fantasy, but the Jesus of history, the Jesus of reality. Well, we began last Sunday night by looking at Matthew's portrait, and we saw that his portrait is Jesus the Christ of Scripture. The great emphasis that Matthew lays is on the fact that Jesus is the fulfillment of centuries of rich Old Testament expectation. And we turn now tonight from Matthew to Mark, and Mark's portrait of Jesus is of the servant, the suffering servant of God and of man who calls us to be suffering servants as well. I wonder, by the way, if I may pause a moment, if you knew that, that unless suffering and service mark our Christian life, we are not authentic followers of Jesus. Suffering and service characterized his life and they characterize all true followers of Jesus today. So keep your eyes open for that thought as we go through this evening. Now there are other differences between Matthew and Mark that I want to mention by way of introduction. One interesting one is that Matthew concentrates on the teaching of Jesus. We saw last Sunday night that he gives us five great blocks of teaching in his gospel that may be deliberately a parallel to the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses. Mark, on the other hand, is much more interested in the actions of Jesus than in his words. The gospel of Mark is an action-packed narrative. It seems that his favorite word is immediately. He uses it so often in the text as one event follows another in breathless sequence. And these stories that Mark records in his gospel are illumined by vivid touches 
that have obviously come from an eyewitness and probably from Peter, with whom he was closely associated. Because Mark was not one of the twelve apostles himself. He wasn't an eyewitness of Jesus at all. Unless conceivably, as some people think, it is Mark who is the anonymous young man whom he mentions in chapter 14 and verses 51-52 of the Gospel who maybe got out of bed rather late and followed Jesus into the Garden of Gethsemane having on only, uh, as we would say, his pajamas or as they would say, his outward gar- outer garment. And when Jesus was arrested, a soldier laid hold of that young man and Mark left the garment in his hand and ran off naked into the night. Mark is the only one who tells that little story, and nobody knows who that young fellow was, but it may have been Mark himself. If so, that was about the only opportunity he had to be an eyewitness of Jesus. But he wasn't one of the apostles. However, the early church fathers in the early centuries of the church tell us that Mark was a very close associate of Peter. Indeed, we know this already from the New Testament because Peter tells us in his first letter, chapter 5 and verse 13, that Mark is my dear son. He refers to him in a very affectionate way, either because he led him to Christ or because he felt affectionately towards him as if he was his father and Mark was his son. Well, Papias, who was a bishop round about 140 AD, refers to Mark as Peter's interpreter. Justin, ten years later, says that Mark wrote down Peter's memoirs. Arrhenius, a little bit later, about 180 AD, calls Mark the disciple and the interpreter of Peter who wrote down the substance of Peter's preaching. So, as we look at the Gospel of Mark, it's good for us to remember that what we are really hearing is not Mark's story of Jesus, and not Mark's portrait of Jesus, but Peter's. Peter, who was one of the intimate three, and indeed the passage I'm going to bring to you tonight is very obviously a reminiscence of Peter himself. So instead of giving you an overview of the Gospel, as I tried to do of the Gospel of Matthew last week, I want to take one passage only, which is the turning point in the narrative of Mark, because it is the watershed in the ministry of Jesus. Before I ask you to turn to it, just let me open it up to you a little bit like this. This passage tells us, as you'll notice when I read it to you again, This passage tells us both who Jesus was and is and who we must be if we are to be true followers of Jesus. Or if you like, I'll put it a different way. In this passage, Jesus defines both his Messiahship and our discipleship. And what is fascinating and of the very greatest significance is that the cross is at the center of both. There is no messiahship of Jesus without the cross, and there is no discipleship for us without the cross. At the very heart of his 
ministry and at the very heart of our discipleship is the cross and what that implies in terms of service and suffering. Well, the scene is a village near Caesarea Philippi up north in Palestine, up in the foothills of Mount Hermon, somewhere very close to the source of the River Jordan, and this is what happened. Will you turn, please, in your Bible to the New Testament section? And the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, that Marian read to us just now, I want to read again from verse 27. Mark 8, 27. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages near Caesarea Philippi. I've already mentioned up in the foothills of Mount Hermon, North Palestine. And on the way he asked his disciples, Who do men say that I am? They said, John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets. And Jesus said, what about you? Who do you say that I am? They said, you're the Christ. Or Peter said, you're the Christ. And he charged them to tell nobody about him. And then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected and be killed And after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. Peter took him and began to rebuke him. But he rebuked Peter. Said get behind me Satan. You are not on the sight of God but of men. Then he called the multitudes with the disciples and said to them. If anybody will come after me. Let him deny himself. And take up his cross as I must take up my cross and let him follow me. The cross is at the heart of his messiahship and it is at the heart of our discipleship. That's the message tonight in a nutshell because it's the very essence of the gospel of Mark. So we begin first, and this will be our longest section, with messiahship, who Jesus was. People were saying he was John the Baptist, the forerunner, Elijah, or one of the other prophets. But Peter said, no, you're not a prophet. You're the fulfillment of prophecy. You are the Christ to whom the prophets pointed. Well, that much is clear. But what kind of a Messiah had Jesus come to be? Galilee in which Jesus at that time uh, was speaking, Galilee is known to have been a hotbed of messianic expectations. And most people were expecting the Messiah when he came, and they were in feverish anticipation of his coming at the beginning of the first century. Most of them believed that he would be a political figure, a warrior king descended from King David, who would lead an insurrection against Rome, who would drive the legions into the Mediterranean Sea and recover Israel's lost national independence. 
You see, they had a vision of the Messiah as a political, a military, a royal figure who would give Israel back their national independence. Now, Jesus knew this. Jesus knew that was the expectation, and it worried him a great deal because he hadn't come to be that kind of Messiah at all. Only very recently, uh, it comes a chapter or two earlier in Mark's account, only very recently, Jesus had fed 5,000 people and more with five barley loaves and a couple of sardines. And you know, John tells us, because it's very interesting, the feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle recorded by all four evangelists. And John tells us that when he'd accomplished the miracle, the rumor started going through the crowd, this is the Messiah. So much so that some of them came and they were on the point of taking him by force in order to make him a king. That's, I've quoted from John's Gospel, chapter 6, verse 15. They, they'd come by force to make him a king. And Jesus withdrew, he escaped into the mountains alone. He had not come to be a political messiah or a national king of that kind. In fact, before his ministry began, he renounced the temptation to seek either military or political power. Instead, he'd come to suffer and to die for our sins on the cross. And that's why, in the early part of his ministry, whenever people had a bit of an inkling that he might be a Messiah, the Messiah, he swore them to secrecy. Tell nobody about it, he said. Not just because he was shy of publicity, but for this reason, listen carefully. They were not ready to know the fact of his messiahship until they had grasped its character. Until they had realized the kind of messiah he'd come to be, he wasn't ready for them to know that he was a messiah at all. So look at our text. Verse 30. He charged them to tell nobody that he was the Messiah. 